She was an ordinary person. She had an ordinary life until this extraordinary thing happened. On a typical Thursday, two police officers show up at this ordinary woman's house. There, they find two people brutally murdered. One, a middle-aged woman, is upstairs on the floor of the bedroom. The first wound is frontal, and the skin flopped open to the back. The other, a man a little older, is slumped on the sofa in the front room. He's been struck multiple times in the head, enough that his face is barely recognizable. I don't know, it's just a horrible thing to overkill someone like that. There was no forced entry, no robbery, nothing was amiss. Just an ordinary house on an ordinary day. The only suspect, an ordinary woman. A woman who snapped. When a woman commits murder, we often find ourselves assigning a label to her. We put her in a compartment as a way of trying to make sense of what happened. Let's unpack some of these labels, these archetypes, and see how well they fit or don't fit the real stories. In this episode, The Woman Who Snapped, the kind of killer where, when it's all over, those who knew her say, wow, I didn't see that coming. My name is Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer. And this is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels a podcast presented by CBS All Access and its new television series, Why Women Kill. Stream it now at cbs.com slash whywomenkill. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 whacks. When she saw what she had done, gave her father 41 That famous childhood rhyme has been sung for well over a hundred years. It's a playful take on a very gruesome day. Thursday, August 4th, 1892. It's a perfectly normal morning in the small town of Fall River, Massachusetts. 50 miles south of Boston, but really a world away from the bright lights of the big city. A young woman named Lizzie Borden is at home. She slept in, and now she's out back, fussing about in the barn, gathering up some lead sinkers for a fishing trip she's planned. Her father, Andrew Borden, heads into town after breakfast. He's the president of the local bank and a prominent landlord. He did his morning walks. He visited his concerns. He went to the bank, his bank. He went to visit some people who were renting a storefront from him. That's Dr. Stephanie Corey. She's a historian. And, get this, she lives in the house right next door to the estate where Lizzie Borden spent her final years. So, Andrew is in town. That leaves three people in the house. Andrew's second wife, Abby Borden, the Irish maid, Bridget Sullivan, and Lizzie. Lizzie is in and out, up and down. She's the only person moving about the house during this period of time. Andrew Borden wraps up his business by mid-morning. He returns about a quarter to 11. The lock on the front door is stuck, so Bridget, the maid, lets him in the side door. She then heads upstairs. She hasn't been feeling well and wants to rest. Fifteen minutes later, Lizzie, standing in the front room, yells out, Bridget, come down quick. Someone's killed father. Andrew Borden's body is slumped on the sofa. 
His coat is rolled up under his head as if he were taking a nap. There are ragged gashes on his face. Blood is splattered around the room. It's everywhere. It looks like someone attacked him with something sharp and weighty, like a hatchet. There's no sign he tried to defend himself. Nothing in the room is broken. This appears to have been a vicious attack on someone who was sound asleep. Bridget came down, but was sent by Lizzie for the doctor, who lived across the street. Noticing the commotion, a neighbor wonders what's going on. Mrs. Churchill, the next-door neighbor, sees her through her kitchen window and yells out, what's the matter? And Mrs. Churchill comes right over. Someone calls the police. They arrive and start questioning Lizzie because, well, she's the one standing there. They ask, where's Mrs. Borden? And she says, well, I think I heard her come in. And so Bridget and Mrs. Churchill are sent upstairs, and sure enough, they find her dead body. The body of Abby Borden, Lizzie's stepmother, is in the guest room, face down on the floor. Thanks to crime scene photographs, newspaper reporting, and autopsies, we know this scene is even more gruesome than the one downstairs. The first wound hit the side of her right face between her ear and her cheek, and it actually severed part of the ear open. Her other wounds suggest she then tried to escape, but was trapped between the dresser and the bed. She fell to the ground and was attacked again from behind. And she has wounds that are probably 17 to her head, one to her face, and one to the back of her upper shoulder. 17 blows to the back of the head, delivered to a defenseless person. This was not a professional hit or even a burglary gone wrong. Clearly, this was the work of someone very angry. Someone who snapped It's a convenient label, the woman who snapped. We use it for female killers whose attacks seem sudden, the ones we didn't see coming. The girls next door who one day pull out a gun or a knife, or in the 1890s, a hatchet. But before we get back to Lizzie, it's worth trying to understand what might be happening to a woman who appears to snap. And Dr. Helen Gavin has the science to help. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Huddersfield in England. If we take the stereotype of the woman who snaps, what are we talking about when we say snap? Does it mean suddenly losing control over your own feelings and therefore your own behavior? Or does it mean someone who just goes ahead and does what they want? There's something called the hypothalamic rage network in the brain. Um, And this is where our primitive reaction to something that threatens us starts telling us what to do. To put it simply, the emotional part of your brain has the potential to override the logical part. Your brain can tell you to lash out, no matter how irrational lashing out might be. And because it's primitive, it bypasses the cortex that tells us Maybe we shouldn't do that. That is a bad thing. The world doesn't want us to do this. So do women who snap and kill have this structure? Yes, they do. They all have it. Do they suddenly have a, a situation where that can be bypassed? Well, yes. If you're threatened, if your husband looks like he's going to kill you, kill your children, then you strike. If it looks like your job 
is threatened, your livelihood is threatened by something your employer's doing, maybe you go out and just do it. So it's, it's the definition of snap that's interesting here. Back in Fall River, suspicion immediately falls onto Lizzie. She's acting weirdly calm about the two corpses in her house. People wonder if she's snapped and killed them both. If so, what was her hypothalamic rage network reacting to? Was it something sudden or something built up over a long period of time? I don't think there was any sense at all that something like this was coming. That's Dr. Stephanie Corey again, looking for clues as to what might have triggered Lizzie to strike, assuming she actually did. There's no pattern to it. There's no pattern that she was violent. There's no pattern that she was mean. There's no pattern that she was aggressive. So here you have this person living this sort of ordinary, nondescript life, and then this extraordinary thing happens, and it doesn't sync with character that you know her to be before and after. Here's some of what we do know of her character. Lizzie Borden was born in 1860. Her mother died when she was less than three years old. She had a sister, Emma Borden. Her father was rich. He owned multiple commercial properties in addition to his role at the bank. But you wouldn't know it by the way they lived. While most of the upper class of Fall River lived up on the hill, the Bordens had a simple home on a quiet street near town. While their extended family and friends were getting electricity and indoor plumbing, Lizzie was still using kerosene lamps and heating bath water on a wood-burning stove. She was a Congregationalist. She had volunteered with the Fruit and Flower organization. She taught Sunday school at the mission for the Congregational Church. She was 32 years old. She didn't work and had no prospects for marriage. In the 1890s, that made her a spinster, destined to be supported for the rest of her life by her father. For over 100 years, people have looked for reasons for Lizzie to be angry. Was she fretting over her future? Her father had remarried many years earlier, but just a few weeks before the murders had spent a large amount of money on a house for his wife's sister. Could financial jealousy have been the thing that pushed Lizzie over the edge? Or were there other horrible secrets in the Borden household that no one ever knew about? Was she being abused? Was she being prevented from doing what she wanted and therefore killed her father and stepmother? Questions like these endure largely because of our fascination with female killers in general and Lizzie Borden in particular. This isn't a new phenomenon even in 1892. A week after the murders, August 11th, Lizzie Borden is arrested and charged, and suddenly her name is on the front pages of newspapers across the country. It was 13 days of national headlines. Lizzie knows she is suspected, but will say nothing. A dramatic scene in court as she pleaded not guilty. Lizzie Borden may be insane. The trial of Lizzie Borden was the first celebrity trial that people read about in the newspapers on a daily basis. The era of tabloid journalism was just taking hold. Journalists set up tents outside the courthouse and reported daily on the trial. Things were being written about her, what she wore, her expression, whether her shoes were scuffed or not, the color of her clothing. So there was all this sort of color commentary about who she was. 
One paper in particular described her as a refined, kind-hearted, charitable, self-restrained girl. Everyone had an opinion on whether she did it or not. People would even write the judge with tips and advice on what questions to ask. In the courtroom, the prosecutors went to great lengths to show how the murders happened. They even brought in the skulls of the victims to show the extreme damage that had been done to them. But nothing they brought forward actually placed the hatchet in Lizzie's hands. There is just zero evidence to prove that she did it. There are no eyewitnesses. There was no blood on her. There was no sense that she had just done something very exertive when she was uh, spied by Bridget uh, right after the death of the father. The jury made its decision quickly. She was acquitted in less than an hour. For a short time after, Lizzie returned to her home. Eventually, she bought a new house in one of the fancier neighborhoods and lived there with her sister. She stayed in Fall River the rest of her life. So that's an unusual thing for someone to do, I think, after such a horrible thing happening. She never had any children. She never had any particular public romances that we know of. The law may have acquitted her, but the public had a different opinion. Her friends were gone. No one would sit with her at church. She stayed private the rest of her life. She didn't write it down. She didn't ever give an interview. She never talked to a reporter. And so the more quiet she was, the more people wanted to know. But there was nothing to know. She had nothing to say. She did, however, have a lot of money. Because of the deaths, Lizzie and her sister inherited their family's estate. Lizzie lived out her life as a wealthy woman. She died of pneumonia. June 1st, 1927. She was 66. Lizzie was acquitted of the murders. And yet, the idea of her as a woman who snapped, it endures. In fact, Dr. Helen Gavin, the professor of psychology we heard from earlier, says this concept plays out in different ways. There appears to be three types of stereotype that we think about when women snap. We talk about the women who do it for jealousy, the women who go postal, and the women who are threatened within a domestic setting. And that's, that's perhaps the most common. It's common, but it can also be complicated to identify. Imagine a husband and wife having an argument in the living room. It turns violent. One of them ends up dead. Regardless of which spouse it is, you'd view this as a rage killing, right? Someone who snapped. Not necessarily. A man could easily kick a woman to death, beat a woman to death with his hands, his feet. A woman is less likely to be able to kill her husband with her hands with her bare hands. So she leaves the room, she gets a knife or some kind of weapon, comes back and kills him. That then is seen as premeditated murder. Does the woman's need to go get a weapon change how we view her? What if she waits till he's asleep or passed out drunk? What if she drugs him and then kills him? Is she still a woman who snapped or a cold-blooded killer? What if she's a daughter and finds a hatchet? and then makes her move. The deeper we dig, the tougher it is to describe her behavior with a simple label. 
Jealousy killings, Dr. Gavin's second grouping, are a different kind of snap. They could be sudden, as in, you discover your husband in bed with his secretary, so you kill them both. Or they can be a reaction to prolonged behavior. Jealousy builds for a multitude of reasons, and it's, it's not instantaneous. The point at which you have had enough is the point, as we're calling it, the snap, when they snap. Whether it's catching someone in the act, suspecting a partner is up to something, or getting caught in a love triangle, the murderous, jealous lover type is so iconic, we have an entire episode devoted to it later in the series. My third lady who snaps is the lady who goes postal. That phrase, going postal, first showed up in newspapers in 1993. It came after a series of mass shootings at post offices across the country by disgruntled employees. Both men and women have been labeled with this kind of snapping behavior. The best-known female example of this was in California in 2006. A woman who had been forced into early retirement returned to work with a gun and killed six co-workers. The other example was an eminent academic biologist, but she had not received tenure. She was a 44-year-old mother of four. It was 2010, and she had been told she wasn't getting tenure, but was still on staff at her university. One evening, during a faculty meeting, she pulled a handgun from her purse and shot the person beside her in the head. Then the next. Then the next. She worked her way around the circular table, killing the first three and injuring three others. Then she ran out of bullets. Now, people get passed over for promotions at work all the time. They don't pick up a gun. So what is it? What is it? Why is she different to me? That's the fascinating thing, isn't it? Why would I not do that? And she did. That same question has been asked for over a century about Lizzie Borden, since plenty of people believe she's 100% guilty. Dr. Anna Motz is a forensic psychologist and the author of the book The Psychology of Female Violence. She has a different take on why we default to the idea of, oh, she just snapped. In my experience, the women I've worked with haven't acted suddenly and out of character. There's usually uh, quite an obvious build-up, although that might have been kept very secret. The thing is, we don't see that build-up because we don't want to. Because of stereotypical beliefs about women, if a woman looks good, if she's well-presented, then it's much harder to imagine that she will be aggressive. And indeed, her own distress, trauma, violent fantasies um, and wishes might be quite hidden. So while she might have been harboring all kinds of disturbance and violence, you know, certainly planning or even conducting a very systematic rehearsal of what she might do, because other people won't have identified that, it will seem as though she's acted suddenly. It makes a great story, but it isn't the psychological reality. I think it makes us think that it couldn't be us. We would never be like that. Gave her father 41. 
Dr. Motz brings us back to Earth with the idea that labeling killers as women who snapped, whether that's Lizzie or someone else, is just to help us sleep at night. And so it's just much more palatable to think suddenly something out of everyone's imagination or control happened and she snapped. It fits easier with our stereotypes about womanhood. Maybe those stereotypes about women might be why the jury found Lizzie not guilty. Maybe they just couldn't believe that a quiet and polite young woman was capable of something so horrible. Or maybe they just didn't want to believe it. After all, what do we really know about what life was like for a 32-year-old unmarried Lizzie? What secrets did she keep? It's awfully simple to think that one day she just went a little crazy. It's scarier to think that maybe she was deeply violent and had been for years and just needed the right moment to execute her long, simmering, murderous plan. It's scarier to think that a woman who snaps is, in fact, just releasing something that's been inside her all along. That is, of course, if Lizzie Borden even did it. We'll never know now, will we? On the next episode, nurses and caretakers who kill, are they the angels of death? I'm Tori Telfer. This is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. Hey, it's Tori again. Have you checked out Why Women Kill, the TV series? It's the story of three women driven to kill, all living in the same house but at different moments in history. It stars Lucy Liu, Jennifer Goodwin, and Kirby Howell-Baptiste. You can watch it online. It's now streaming exclusively on CBS All Access. Go check it out by signing up for a free trial at cbs.com slash whywomenkill. That's cbs.com slash whywomenkill.